A reading from Jeremiah. Hear the word of the Lord, you descendants of Jacob, all you clans of Israel. This is what the Lord says. What fault did your ancestors find in me that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. They did not ask, where is the Lord who brought us up out of Egypt and led us through the barren wilderness, through a land of deserts and ravines, a land of drought and utter darkness, a land where no one travels and no one lives? I brought you into a fertile land to eat its fruit and rich produce, but you came and defiled my land and made my inheritance detestable. The priest did not ask, where is the Lord? Those who deal with the law did not know me. The leaders rebelled against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal, following worthless idols. Therefore, I bring charges against you again, declares the Lord, and I will bring charges against your children's children. Cross over to the coast of Cyprus and look. Send to Keter and observe closely. See if there has ever been anything like this. Has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they are not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. The word of God for the world. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Good morning. First, I want to thank everyone who sent me cards or Facebook messages or emails encouraging me today. That was really helpful, and I appreciate your support. When Michelle asked me if I would preach one Sunday this summer, I hesitantly agreed. And then I looked at the lectionary, and I found another uneasy orator, and I shared Jeremiah's sentiment. Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am only a youth, for to all to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you. And that indeed is my hope this morning, that the Lord will deliver me from providence after the service today. Now Jeremiah was a young man who prophesied in the nation of Judah from about 627 B.C. until sometime after the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. And he's sometimes called the weeping prophet because of the sorrow over God's judgment that he was called to proclaim. That was his job, to declare the judgment that was coming from God. Frankly, I'm glad that's not typically my job. Um, and while it might not seem like it from what Rod read us this morning, he was also called to announce the hope that was coming to this disobedient generation. So my desire for us today is that we'll take heed of that warning and also rest in that hope. Now, the passage we heard today is one of Jeremiah's first sermons, which is another nice parallel with your guest proclaimer today. And many theologians assert that this passage follows a covenant lawsuit motif. So let's imagine that we're in the courtroom where God is pressing charges against his people for a breach of the covenant. 
of which they, and I would argue we, are terribly guilty. Now, I've been in a courtroom twice in my life, once when I was 16 and I got a ticket for going too fast for conditions, conditions being, well, too fast being the speed limit of 35 miles an hour, and conditions being the car in front of me was stopped. (laughs) So, needless to say, a couple of cars were totaled that day, and fortunately no one was seriously injured. But I went to court and pled guilty, and the judge had mercy on poor little me, got rid of the points on my license, took away most of my fine, and sent me to a defensive driving class instead. But the trial here in Jeremiah 2 is a jury trial. So many of you know that Dave and I moved here just over a year ago, and within the first six months, we had both been summoned by Henderson County for jury service. Now, Dave, of course, called, and they say, you're not needed tomorrow in court. Great. However, I actually had the great pleasure of not only being called and having to go, but also to serve on a jury trial here in Henderson County um, for a criminal trial. And so my experience down in the courtroom on Grove Street gives me some context to understand this passage. But there's some other really important um, context that's probably familiar to many of you that we also need to talk about. Way back before Jeremiah's day, hundreds of years earlier, God had made a covenant with his people through his chosen leader, Moses. He carved out for them the Ten Commandments, and the emphasis was that the people worship no other gods but the Lord God. And the Israelites agreed. They said, we'll obey these laws. And God said he would bless them if they did. He would bless the fruit of their wounds, the fruit of their ground, the fruit of their cattle, etc., etc. The list goes on and on. But if they chose to disobey the commandments, God would curse them with things like disease and drought and famine and defeat. And overall, it sounded like a good deal to them. Just follow the commandments, and all is well. Better than well, even. And then, while Moses is up on the mountain receiving God's law, the Israelites build an idol in the form of a golden calf to worship, which directly contradicts the deal that they had made with God. But Moses intercedes on their behalf, and God, in his grace and mercy, withholds his anger. God, in his grace and mercy, renews the covenant, and continues to dwell with these stubborn people. And throughout the course of the Old Testament, you find that this is a central problem of God's people. They continually worship idols that they've made instead of worshiping the Lord God who they've promised. And thus, as told by Jeremiah, God brings his people to trial. They're clearly guilty, and they're being charged with two distinct things. One, they went far from God. They rejected God. And two, they went after worthlessness. They worshiped other gods. Now, a few weeks ago, John Laney preached a sermon on what makes God angry. And while the people's apostasy and idolatry might find their way onto that list, I want to contend instead that it makes God sad. It breaks his heart, just as it does when people reject and betray us. Rejection hurts. Just ask that poor little girl that Madison McClinton sent the love letter back to, edited instead of checking, yes, I want to be your girlfriend, your boyfriend. And I have a similar story myself way back from sixth grade. I still remember the exact words of rejection from Jonathan, who was my hugest crush. So 
I was sitting down at the girls' end of the lunch table because in sixth grade, at least in 1998, while girls have huge crushes on boys, they never sit together at the lunch table. I'm sitting down with the girls on my end, and the boys are sitting on the other end, and one of my friends decides um, that I should ask him out. So in true sixth grade fashion, one of my friends walks to the boys' side of the table and pops the question to Jonathan, and his response reverberated through my entire body and the entire lunchroom when he said, no, God no, heck no. <laughs> Maybe one of those words wasn't his exact, exact word, but you get the gist. These five simple words brought crushing pain and sadness onto my poor little sixth grade self. And so the Israelites, likewise, reject God. And then they go create their own God to worship. It's like Jonathan the next day at the lunch table comes and asks my best friend if she wants to be his girlfriend. And it's not really like that at all. It's a lot worse, really. Now, when I started preparing for this sermon, I had a really hard time getting past verse 5. It was gut-wrenching for me to think about God asking this question. What wrong did your ancestors find in me that they chose to reject and betray me? What wrong did they find in me? Y'all, this is God asking this question. The creator of the universe, the one who brought the people up out of Egypt, the one who leads us in the wilderness, in a land of deserts and pits, in our land of poverty and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through, where no man dwells. He brought these people into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. He loves us, and he blesses us, and he lavishly showers us with all kinds of things and relationships and experiences that we don't deserve. This is the God who asks, What wrong did your ancestors find in me, that they went far from me and went after worthless things and became worthless themselves? What wrong did they find in me, that they defiled my land, and made my heritage an abomination. What wrong did they find in me that the priests, even the priests, did not seek the Lord? What wrong did they find in me that those who handle the law did not know me? What wrong did they find in me that the rulers have transgressed against me? What wrong did they find in me that the prophets prophesied by Baal of all gods? What wrong did they find in me that they foolishly went after things that don't profit. The question is rhetorical, but the answer is obvious. In courtroom terms, God is innocent. They did not find any wrong in him. The people have rejected and betrayed their God, in whom they found no wrong. And thus, God presents his case against them. The lawsuit language rings clearly. Therefore, once more, I accuse you, says the Lord, and I accuse your children's children. Not only does God present the wrongs of his people, but he presents their choice as pure folly. Has this worked before? God asks. Are there other places that you've seen where people have knowingly, purposefully turned from what works to what doesn't work? He asks them to go far to the east, to the coasts of Cyprus, Go far to the west, to Kedar. Look far and wide and see. 
Has ever a nation changed its gods to those who are not gods? In these places, the people have clung really tightly to these gods who do nothing for them. And yet, the Israelites, whose God has done so much for them, choose, they're choosing these other gods who do nothing. And it really doesn't make sense, does it? God is presenting an argument that turning from him and rejecting him and choosing that which does not profit is really just plain ludicrous. If it ain't broke, he says, don't fix it. And if there's one thing in this world, and I believe there is only one thing in this world that ain't broke, it is God himself. So I want to suggest that when God's people forsake him and turn towards other gods, be they money, relationships, power, status, families, what have you, it makes God sad. It breaks his heart. It grieves him. And we see this in his plea to the jury and the witnesses in this trial. Be shocked, God tells the heavens. Be utterly desolate, he cries. And Israel's defection is shocking. It makes God utterly desolate. Our idolatry personally injures our God. In the beginning of the passage today, God spoke to two evils, rejecting him and choosing something else which does not fully satisfy. And he comes back around to this in verse 13, the climax of his opening statement in the courtroom. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Let's talk first about the cisterns. When I was doing a little research on cisterns, I started with a definition and I asked Google, what is a cistern? Google said, a cistern is a tank for storing water, especially one as part of a flushing toilet. Now, of course, this is a modern definition, but I kind of liked the picture it gave me when I equated it with choosing idols over God. Why choose toilet water when there's this perfectly good stream of water right next to it? In the context of the scripture, however, God is speaking to some people in some really arid land. The rain doesn't fall often, and so the people hew out cisterns to catch what little rain falls. They carve reservoirs out of stone or create giant bowls and dishes of clay, and then they use the water they collect for bathing and drinking and cooking. One commentary I read said, The best cisterns, even those in solid rock, are strangely liable to crack. And the water collected from clay roofs or from marley soil has the color of weak soap suds, the taste of the earth or the stable, and is full of worms. In a land of little water, however, earthy soap sud colored water is better than no water at all, I guess. Here in Jeremiah, God compares the people's idolatry to building these water-catching receptacles out of clay or stone, which seems pretty ingenious, really, in this dry land, until you consider the alternative. The alternative is what they have forsaken, the fountain of living waters, a stream of clean water that never dries up, that doesn't taste like dirt, and isn't full of worms. It ensures that the people will survive and that they can use their time and energy to do something other than dig cisterns. 
The fountain is God himself, the one who brought them up out of the land of Egypt, the one who leads us in the wilderness, the one who brought them into a land flowing with milk and honey to enjoy its fruits and its good things, clean water that flows continually, that sustains life, as compared with murky cistern water that just stands there until it seeps into the ground or evaporates into the air. Have you seen any of those survival TV shows on TV these days? I once saw Bear Grylls on Man vs. Wild. Now, he was in the desert with no water, and so he showed us what you could do. So he dug a pit in the sand, put some plastic sheeting in it, urinated in the pit, covered it with some more plastic sheeting, put some heavy things on the side, and waited for the sun to create some condensation. Came back a little while later, and aha, a swig of water. Now, imagine you're in that same desert. Just behind Bear Grylls, there's an oasis. There's an underground spring that's gushing with clean water, and a lot more than just one swig of it. Enough to hydrate him forever, to keep him alive, and give him the strength to truly thrive. Now, which one makes more sense? Expending the little energy he has for one sip of urine condensation water, or simply turning around and finding his fill of clean water from that spring. Idolatry is illogical, isn't it? So why do we choose to go after things that are worthless, that do not satisfy? It's because we're thirsty, isn't it? We recognize the need in ourselves for something to drink, and we'll go after anything that seems like it might quench our thirst. Even if it's toilet water, or murky worm water, or urine condensation water, we feel an emptiness, and we get into the mindset that building our own cisterns is actually ingenious, and, and that we can, on our own, forge a container that can hold whatever we think will fill us up. We love instant gratification. So what cisterns are we hewing? Are we looking to satisfy our needs through our jobs? Are we trying to fill our emptiness with our friends, or our spouse, or our children, or our grandchildren? Or how about this one? The idols of service, or of social justice. These are good things, and so are our families and our friends. But God is looking for us to drink first from the fountain of living water. And then, from the overflow of that drink, to pour ourselves out to serve others, and to love our families, and to fight for social justice. If we choose any of these things, or anything at all, above God or before him, we face the same charges as these Israelites. God, the prosecutor, is brokenheartedly charging us with the very same rejection and betrayal. But I don't want to end this sermon with just the warning that God gives us through Jeremiah. I can't help but read ahead and find the hope that he promises as well. Even in that same verse, 13, in the middle of the denunciations for this foolish rejection and betrayal, you can find it if you look for it. Do you hear what he calls his audience? My people. Even though they, and I would argue we, 
have forsaken him and sought that which does not profit, he still calls us his people. And I believe that God knows that we as human beings will fail. We will keep on building cisterns, and they will keep on breaking. And we will keep on breaking God's heart. We'll keep asking for a conviction of guilty through our actions. But that's not what he wants for us. You know how I know that? Because the fountain of living water has not dried up. It is eternal. And God has provided his spirit for us, who leads us continually to that living water. Gail preached a few weeks ago about how throughout the Bible, important things seem to happen at wells. And probably the most popular um, passage, most famous one, that's set at a well, reminds us of this same concept that Jeremiah is introducing. In John 4, Jesus encounters the Samaritan woman at the well. And he tells her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But those who drink of the water I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. May we all thirst for the living water that was given to this Samaritan woman. Let us join with the Spirit to seek the living water that Jesus offers us to drink and be filled with a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. May we be so full of this living water that God's love gushes out of us now and forever. As I begin to wrap up today, I want to share with you from C.S. Lewis's book, The Silver Chair, in the Chronicles of Narnia series. In this scene, Jill is lost and thirsty in a strange land, and she finds a brook, but she sees Aslan, the lion, who is a symbol of Jesus in these stories, lying beside the water. Aslan growls and tells her that she can come drink. Are you not thirsty? said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I, could I, would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. And I'll close today with some of John's final words of invitation from the book of Revelation. Come. And let the one who hears say, Come, 
Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Amen.